Hello, this is Aaron Eckhart, and you are listening to Center Stage with Mark Gordon, the beautiful one and only Mark Gordon. Center Stage, Center Stage, Center, Center, Center Stage. Center Stage. Welcome to Center Stage. My name is Mark Gordon. On this show, we're going to talk with Sherita Woodley, author of Quick Fall of Light. Set during the time of a bird flu epidemic, a woman vows to protect a passenger pigeon whose secret existence will determine the future of humankind. The inspiration for the book came from her experience working in a pathology lab. There, she saw how environmental destruction and extinction of endangered species could lead to the release of pathogens and viruses deadly to humans. Welcome to Center Stage. Well, thank you for inviting me. How would you best describe Quick Fall of Light? Well, it's it's what's been termed an echo thriller, I guess. I I didn't think of it that way when I was writing it. I thought of it more as, um, oh, maybe soft speculative fiction uh, story that was a little bit fantastical, and yet there was something about it that um, seemed kind of close to reality. Now, when you say echo, what do you mean by that? There were people that ended up reviewing the book. They almost consistently called it an echo thriller. And I suspicion one of the reasons may have been the bird of the story. The passenger pigeon seemed to just captivate people. And, of course, it was based on the idea that a bird had been sort of brought back from extinction. And it was, uh, I guess, the the idea between people that were examining the story closely was that something basically prescribed to die had been through a unique set of circumstances saved. And I think echo in that term meant ecological thriller. There was an event that happened that inspired you to write this book. Tell me about that. It was sort of um, an interesting accumulation of things, but I would say the primary one happened in the 1990s. I was a medical transcriptionist for two or three hospitals, a couple of them here in Spokane. And while I was there, I worked for a pathology lab. And in there, there were hints of a disease that was coming in called mad cow disease. It was... um, actually caused by a prion instead of a virus. So there is a a vast difference. But the idea that a disease could be transmitted from an animal to a human, in this case it was cattle to humans, just fascinated me, but it also scared me terribly. It was a disease that had, I believe, begun in the UK. And yet we here in the United States were getting ready for it. And I remember going to a couple of, um, they were like um, meetings that were designed to prepare us without alarming us. But I was, I was the one that was documenting this information. And so it was alarming to hear about it and its proximity to us. And I think the idea kind of began then the idea that we were susceptible to zoonotic disease. I didn't even know the term before then. And then it began sort of a series of, of a contemplation about bird flu 
that also was on the rise in the middle 2000s in China. And uh, I just kind of put ideas together and came up with the the thought of what are we going to do if if we end up with a catastrophe? How are we prepared for it? And one of the one of the ideas that kept kind of folding through my mind was I didn't want to talk about it in a nonfiction way. I wanted to I wanted to look at story and characters and how they would deal with it probably a good six, seven years of just thinking about the idea and sketching out notes. And it was a very long process for me. I remember hearing about Mad Cow Disease and I was at a, uh, it was an opening of a play at the Geffen Theater in Westwood. And at the after party, they were handing out Uh pizza and it had meat on there. And I took this and I took a bite and then someone mentioned Mad Cow Disease. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, thought, yes. I thought, oh, if yeah. you would have just told me that before I took a bite out of this pizza. <laughs> you know, it's one thing to see it in cattle. And it's awful. It's, it's, it's horrible to see the visuals. Um, and then to hear it described in humans, young humans in particular, again, it seemed to be something that kind of sought out age groups. And um, it seemed like young people were often when it was described. And it really didn't flare up in an immense way. But I think it still kind of sits in a, in a place where we're aware of it and doing our best to keep it at bay. I remember reading um, The Great Influenza about the, uh, the flu from 1918 and uh-huh. just being blown away, but I, I never thought that my life, in my lifetime, I would uh, be involved in the sequel in with COVID-19. And now um, it makes your book even more relevant, doesn't it? I think so. I, you know, I've spent the last few days kind of going back over it because, you know, Mark, I, I just laid the book aside. It's been 10 years. And um, I'm not saying I forgot the story, but I've written another full novel since. I've written a nonfiction book since. And I've never picked up the book again, except just, you know, for a periodic look at something, maybe a question that somebody had. And I had forgotten some of the structure and, and some of the oddities that compare to now. Like this morning, I, I was kind of looking back through the first few pages of it. And for some reason, when I was designing the beginning of the book, I wanted a grocery store in the first few pages of it. And I picked Safeway. And I remember thinking, if this were to happen in its most graphic form, we would probably be limited in numbers in entering a grocery store. We would probably be masked. We might even be limited in what we could take out of the grocery store. So I kind of, just by thinking about it in in a sense of a pandemic, it didn't seem that unreasonable to come up with those ideas when I wrote the book, which was in probably about 2004, 2005, 2006, probably was in the heart of it. 
So, you know, some of the things that are happening now, peripheral things, the way we're handling it, the social distancing, that kind of thing, it's not too far a stretch to to have kind of put those pieces together long before this happened. And part of it was because of the 1918 flu and the the way they tried to mitigate. They they had just as much problem, for instance, masking was fought uh, for a long time in different communities, took a lot to convince people to wear masks, but there was a big difference. That flu was just, it, it was just totally devastating. Not that COVID isn't, but it was so deadly, a man could get on a trolley and be feeling okay, and he'd be dead by the time he, he was hauled off of it. So it, it was a horrible flu. I had two grandmothers that lived through it. One of them was pregnant when she lived through it, and I never knew much of her story. I just knew that my father was born at the early part of 1919, and and he was healthy, uh, and she survived giving birth. The other grandmother did get the 1918 flu, and she was quite young, probably less than 20 years old. She said, really, in many ways, she was never the same. She said it extracted a large toll on her energy, and she was a farm woman accustomed to working long hours and particularly around you know, harvest time and cooking for men that worked in the fields and that kind of thing. And she would have to limit her output because she said it, it just took a lot out of her. And she did claim toward the end of her life she was never the same after it. What research went into doing the book? Was talking to your grandmother part of that? Well, I remembered it. I can't say it was either, you know, the touchstone that set off the story or that I used her as a reference. She was long gone by the time I wrote it. Um, but she, her her influence, I think, was sort of under it. I realized it after I'd written more of it. The research was extensive. I did a lot of reading about the 1918 flu. There was an excellent article that came out in, I want to say it was National Geographic around 2005. I believe it was called Killer Virus. And they they were looking back at how the 1918 flu had emanated and the description of its worldwide pandemic form and then how it had kind of just quit it had just disappeared overnight, and they were in the process. I want to say it was virus hunters, particularly out of the UK, that were going into areas where there, I want to say maybe even Siberia, places where there was permafrost. And they were extracting bodies out of what little they could find that may still be preserved. And the whole idea was to was to see if they could find that virus in what was well-preserved human bodies. I don't believe the article said whether they had succeeded. It just said that their efforts were there. That was one of their high hopes so that they could have an idea of how to deal with it if it occurred again. That was a a huge source of, of information for me and gave me a lot of inspiration to kind of look at it at the graphicness of it. I used John Barry's book to a great extent. There was a woman, I want to say Colada was her name, Gina Colada. 
I can't remember the name of the book, but she wrote, might have been called The Devil's Flu. She wrote one or two that were really good that I read. And I spend a lot of time just, again, going going through, there were a couple of fiction books. Pale Horse, Pale Rider was a big one. I wanted to kind of envision how someone could tell you a fever dream, how they could talk to you about basically a hallucination, and you as a writer would be able to write that scene without losing the reader, because we all know that dreams are so hard to explain. So that was a huge part of it because some of the story is devoted to description of dreams, hallucinations. I had to walk that line between telling something that was kind of fantastic and something that yet the reader could understand. They could still conceptualize the idea. So it was a real combination of things, Mark. It was a sense of wanting very, very much to tell a story about a pandemic without becoming completely dystopian. I didn't want it to be so negative that it would be too hard to read. I wanted it to have something that carried a message of hope. And that's what that bird did. I I credit the passenger pigeon with it. It made that story hopeful. You kind of answered this next question Um, But maybe you can elaborate a little bit more about your creative process in writing the book. What is that process that you go through to to structure a book and create a book? And like you said, it wasn't, um, you didn't want it to be too fanciful, but it was dealing Mm -hmm. with this abstract world of dreams. I remember thinking out a lot about the experiment with the bird. There is basically a, a man who's trained a a bird to move from one part of the United States to another. And this is sort of an after effect of the fact that these birds are used to create an antivirus. So I spent a lot of time thinking about the mystery of that. How would a man train a bird? That that fascinated me. I spent some time looking at um, what birds can conceptualize, how they think think in our world, how they use their senses. So I would get going, I would run on a fascination like that. And sometimes I would write scenes out of order, realizing that I had the gem of something that worked on page 14, but I would never really solve how all the small intricacies in between until page 99. And sort of leave it there, kind of untethered to kind of work in my brain. And then I would write about, oh, maybe Josephine for a while, because I did divide the book into three points of view, Josephine, Gary Stearns, and Martin Pritchard. Um, So I would enter each one of their worlds knowing what their job was, what their occupation was, and also developing them as characters, figuring out what it is. It's the touchstone, the thing that they've never gotten over. In an environment like a pandemic, you can move into that realm pretty easily because you're you're extricating everything else. The world is basically shut down. So you can look at their memories and their hopes and their desires and their losses probably a little bit closer because you're not 
being bombarded with a lot of things from the outside world. On the other hand, and this was a, something I had to be really aware of, was when you're writing about a pandemic, it really doesn't give you a whole lot of, what, I, what do I want to say, crisis. It's there, but it's kind of in this form of death without a whole lot of climatic action to it. And so I knew that it's this driver wheel from the past. It's that mystery between a man and a bird that's going to keep that story going because there's a lot of death around these people. And they are the ones that move it. They are the ones that challenge the situation and say, I'm going to get from point A to point B despite what's going on around me. I threw in some cataclysmic action besides the flu. Uh, I threw in a huge, huge fire in the middle of the uh, Great Plains, which was interesting to draw upon, too, because uh, we here in the Pacific Northwest had gone through a huge fire really not that many years before the 1918 flu. In 1910, there was an immense fire here in Oh, it was, uh, it was a group of states, Washington and Idaho were involved, and it was uh, the great fire out of which the Pulaski was developed, the tool that, that's kind of the two-headed tool that allows um, firefighters to fight fires on the ground. Uh, it, was, it was a horrible, horrible inferno, and I wanted to draw upon that to kind of set the, you know, set the, there was... I guess, a feeling in me that I didn't want the pandemic to be too inert. I wanted to keep things moving, and this fire did that, especially toward the end of the story. So it was sort of a back and forth, moving between characters, moving between situations. Sometimes I would just concentrate on something for a long period of time, and then I would shift to another. And that seemed to allow me to not get lost in one point of view. Had you always wanted to be a writer? Writing crept up on me. I always liked English in school. I wrote a lot of short stories in school, but I never really had much training. I think I had an English 101 course in college. I was drawn toward words, but I was never in a position where I could use them freely on my own. You know, a medical transcriptionist is listening to voices every day. She's plugged into everybody else's words. And maybe that's part of what set it off, was because I was listening to other stories. Because very often in transcription, you do have a story that you're listening to, uh, particularly in the kind I did, um, some of the other work that I worked with uh, labor and industries. And so their look at people and what had happened to them and how they were confronting different situations, injuries, disease, and so forth, was always interesting. Also, emergency medicine, very interesting transcription. I think it was there and kind of quietly building. Uh, and in my personal life, there were a couple of things that were strong variables that pushed me toward writing I had a couple of stepdaughters, very sweet little girls that had an unusual disease, and one of them was developmentally dis disabled. So very often I would keep notes about their situation and the way they were progressing through their problems. 
And I think all of this combined together just kind of led me toward understanding that I felt better after I wrote it out. The journaling had something to do with therapy. And if I took it a step or two farther and turned it into story, it was actually something that just kind of almost became an obsession. I wrote long hours at night while I would transcribe during the day. Writing very often for me was, you know, it was relegated to my off hours. So I had to really want to do it, especially with Quickfall. I'm not sure, Mark, that I could have avoided it. I still don't think I could avoid it. It's one of those things that I just, I want to do it. I'm compelled to do it. A lot of people write, but they never get to that next step of publishing or getting that recognition. And what was that epiphany for you that you were able to push through that and manifest this and realize this gift that you have? It's tenacity. I guess that would be a huge part of it. But a huge part of it is also curiosity. I knew I was swimming against the current especially with the first novel. What do you mean swimming really against quick, the what do you mean swimming against the current? To have a first novel published. I think um many people think Quickfall is the very first one I wrote. It's the first one that was published. I had completed another work before Quickfall. And I had actually queried it and I I had some interest but it never went anywhere. And I backed away from writing for a while, thinking, I can't, I don't have it. I can't do this. And, of course, as you know, there's a lot of rejection. Uh, and I just wasn't sure I wanted to keep opening myself up for that. Well, then, as Quickfall got to the point of completion, and I had edited it, and I'd had other people edit it and tell me it was good, I thought, well, let's try this again. And so I queried roughly 150 literary agents. I would say most of them in New York City, a few out here in the West. I had some interest. One lady sat on it for six months and then said no. And then finally, I don't know what, why this didn't occur to me before, but I queried a fellow right here in Spokane. And he had a small press and he was instantly taken with it. He took it. It took a, a while for it to be edited again and, you know, put to press. But once it clicked, it, it moved very rapidly. I was surprised as the next person. I figured I had started at, <laughs> at the highest rungs possible. And basically, it was achievable. And I knew it. Somehow I knew that if I found the right person, but that was it. I had to find the right person. And that right person was right here within 15 miles of me, and I just didn't realize it. What does uh, a belief in yourself have to do with finishing the project? I'm not sure that it is belief in myself. I think it's got something more to do with obsession. I've written many, many things that, and I'm, I would categorize them as short stories or maybe prose, that kind of thing, that I've never had any desire to publish. And, and I think that happens a lot with writers. They'll, you know, they'll have something that, that takes their mind for a while and they're, they're overcome with it and they just have to write through it. 
But I guess there's always been a little bit of, um, I wouldn't call it competition. I would call it maybe a desire to excel. I went through very much the same feelings. I became a pilot when I was very young, when I was in my early 20s. And I went through exactly the same feelings. It was a whole different experience, but I had to push myself to do it. I had to tell myself nobody else around me was doing it. There was no one else in my family that had done it. And I just simply said, I've wanted to do this since I was a child and I need to learn how to fly an airplane and I would like to get a certificate. I'd like to get, you know, at least my private pilot's license. And I managed to do that and get an instrument rating before I finally quit. So it's not the first time it's happened to me. It's just probably the most difficult thing I've ever done. Writing is very difficult for me. When do you realize that as you're writing the book, because eventually you have to finish, when do you realize that what you've written is good enough? Well, you know, some people can say they put a book through 26 rewrites. I, I've never been able to do that. I try to get it as right as I can the first time. I don't say that it turns out right the first time. Very often it isn't. As, as I go through time, I recognize that more and more. Uh, what I used to think was right isn't. And I'm either trying to get it more right the first time, or I realize I'm going to end up having to edit this and rewrite parts of it, if not all of it, from beginning to end at, at certain points in a book. And I've been known to start all over again, sometimes as much as three times to get the beginning right. But I... I feel in my mind that I need to be as close to that perfection that I'm looking for so that I can keep it rolling. I've read and I've been told by people far wiser in this craft than I am is that a story can sag in the middle. And it is probably one of the saddest things to happen to a writer because they'll have a very good start and they might even have a pretty good ending in mind, but they can't get through the middle. And that's probably like a, a beacon out there. That's that part that I, I know if I can see it, if I can have an inkling that it's there, I will keep climbing and putting together the pieces of the puzzle to get through that middle uh, that's so precarious. And once I, I seem to know where that is, I've, I've done it now two or three times, then the end just kind of floats right into place. But I've got to get it right. I have to know that I haven't gone too far off the trail to get there. What advice would you give people that would like to write and publish a book? Well, first of all, read. Lots and lots and lots of reading. For me, it's, it's getting harder, too. And, and part of it is uh, there just don't seem to be enough hours in the day to get everything done. But I try to read two different ways. I read for research and resources. And very often I'm note-taking during that period of time. I'll take a lot of notes. Quickfall had a sheaf of paperwork with it. Um, 
And then the other kind of reading, which is to feed your brain and your heart, the kind of writing that you ascribe to, that you admire. Uh, Some writers say read everything. I tend not to do that, although there are times I will. Uh, Sometimes I can get a tidbit out of nothing. And that's often what I'm looking for is how does somebody else say something that gives me a, a spark? The other thing I would say to do isn't necessarily practicing every day, but when you do practice, practice with sincerity. Don't just go to the writing desk and be um, lukewarm about it because the writing desk is a hard place to be in the first place. So very often when I would write, especially something lengthy, I will stop just before I get to a place that is really meaty, really something I'm driving toward. And I'll know that I'm leaving myself uh, a carrot. I know that I can sit down in that seat in the next day or 48 hours, whatever, and that little piece of information that I've been waiting to get to. I might even have a line or two that I've, I've kind of sacked away for a rainy day can come out then and that'll do it. That's enough to say, okay, I've achieved this. That felt really good. Now I'm going to go on to the next one. So practice when you're ready. And sometimes I guess the third point for me would be keep it secretive. If I say too much, If I explain too much to someone, very often I'm overthinking it. And then it becomes, how can I write this and make it the way it comes out verbally? Because they're two entirely different systems. So I'm fairly quiet about it. Of course, have to follow some kind of structure. So my husband, for instance, knows that I'm disappearing for a few hours. And that's just, you know, that's just part of the routine but I don't always discuss what I wrote. Sometimes a little bit of it, sometimes very little of it. So to me, it's reading is is very important. The practice should be in line with, you know, your dedication to it and kind of keep it secret. That seems to empower you as a writer. How important is it to set goals and within those goals, deadlines. I think is very important uh, for me. I, I probably couldn't write. I would be very frustrated. Nothing would get done. I don't have to be punctual. It doesn't have to be the same time every day, but there has to be routine to it. There has to be an excitement about it. It has to be planned for and executed. Uh, I've, I know what it's like not to do it and how I feel when I'm not doing it. Uh, and this is a real good point in time. I've had more interruptions just on every level since COVID started than I've had in a long time with writing. What, what kind of interruptions? Well, because I know for me, it uh, having too much time, because I'll sit down and I'll start writing something or I, I'll, 
I'll procrastinate because I think, well, I'm thinking about all the other stuff. I've watched too much news and everything mm-hmm. seems to be terminal. Mm-hmm. And I think, what's mm-hmm. the use? And then I just want to climb in bed and put the, the yeah. sheets over my head. <laughs> but, but then I, when I finally do sit down, and like you said, I get very inspired when I put in a couple of hours of work. Then I go, well, I just did that and it feels really good. And I just don't know mm-hmm. why I can't go back every day to experience that good feeling. Some days I just can't get off the tee box. Yeah, I, I, that you express it well. It's some of it is. Uh, I think COVID has set off a lot of worry, and though I don't think of myself as operating on that principle, I probably do. Uh, there are times when I'm too concerned about having enough groceries or, you know, maybe the, the toilet paper debacle where something's missing in a store makes you nervous about, could there be something else missing? So I'm kind of thinking about things like that. I'm thinking about survival things instead of thinking about the other survival, which is your your sense of who you are, your sense of humanity, your your creativity, which can build into you feeling better about everything. And and so I I realize as we we go into fall now and a lot of I I live out in the country, there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, there's we're in high fire danger uh, I, I do a lot of watering and just making sure things are okay. I operate well that way. It's a good balance for me to have physical work alongside of mental work. But right now, the physical work is too much. And by the time I sit down, I'm tired. Or I get up in the morning and I'm thinking about doing these other things I would normally be kind of putting in in some kind of another order instead of in front of writing and so I lose track of it the days go by and there's no excuse for my behavior but I do it because it's become for the moment it's become a habit so what I'm starting to do now is I'm moving more into the old version of what I used to do. I do better in the morning. I think better. I process better. I move between scenes better. And I would say over the last week, I've probably written three or four good solid times. They haven't been as long as I used to write, but they are short, intense bursts of writing. And I feel better. And I feel that I'm doing what I should be doing, at least the beginnings of it, to get something accomplished. And I guess I guess that's a good sign because in my mind, in my in my structured mind, I think we're we're gonna need the writers every bit as much as we ever have, maybe more when this particular pandemic is over or whatever is going on with all of us there is pandemic but there are many other things that are 
interwoven with it. And I think creativity is going to be a way to move into the future, just as it's always been. I, I find that um, it's a coping strategy, perhaps, the way that uh, everyone has evolved during this time period. And I think for me, it's that not knowing when it's going to end. I remember reading Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, and Mm -hmm. he talks about, you know, here he is, he's in Auschwitz, and some people would actually throw themselves on the electric fence to commit suicide because they couldn't take that uncertainty and the unknowing of when it was going to end. See, if you, if, if, I think if I knew, oh, I have to stay inside for a week, I could do with that, or a month. But when it's just mm-hmm. this never-ending thing, they can't say, well, you can, it's all going to be over next week. And so I think that is a little harder to deal with um, on a, an emotional and psychological level. And that, in turn, cuts into my creative process. And it, it's just like some days I can do it and deal with it, but for me to see mm-hmm. that end result, and I think that's why I asked about the goals, because with the goal in mind, there's that end game, and and there's going to be a time frame when it'll be accomplished. And I think with this situation, there's really no there's no ending point, and it makes it really challenging. Yes, yes, it it is in there. No end point. That's a good way to put it. What was what was Frankel's term? He said, "When you know the why, you can endure almost anyhow." It's just such yes. a great, such a great book. It is. My my mother read it. Uh, she read it during World War II, and she she seemed to she she got such a grip on it that I heard about that book from her all the way to the end of her life. She was very much a believer in uh, in his concept. And, and that's something I think that comes from within. I think it's, it's not necessarily you've got it or you don't have it. I think you can develop it. And I think it has to do with, and I can't think of the term right now, when we expect a return, we we don't know how to put off getting the return. We're we're always looking for, I guess, an immediate. Uh, and there's a term you'll gratification. probably gratification. Gratification. There, there's the book, The Road Less Traveled, uh, F. Scott Peck. Um, yes. Yes. You know. And and I've dealt with that. I know what you're talking about. It's that when is there ever going to be the right space for this? Is it is it even meaningful to write it? Because I'm spending all this time, and there may not even be an interested party out there. There may not be an interested world out there. It's it's scary to think that you are giving that much of yourself to something that's a huge unknown. However, sometimes you're helping somebody else get there. That's sometimes the reason I do it. 
I, I think ultimately that things have to be written or created for ourselves to yeah. express that creativity, that thing that wants to get out that word that wants to be spoken. And it's yeah. just like when you talked earlier about you kept doing these transcriptions and it was like, for some reason, your voice needed to be heard. And then yes. finally, you, you started to express that. Most of Quickfall was written at the kitchen table. I didn't have a whole lot of training to write. I wrote maybe more out of just being pushed far enough at my extreme wits that I knew I had to do something with even journal notes. They weren't enough. It wasn't an expression enough. So I would just sit down and handwrite sometimes just to just to feel that, just to explore places that never seemed to get tapped unless I wrote. And I remember thinking at the time, how many people do this? How many people who have not been trained in some kind of program or, or you know, been selected out of a group being kind of maybe coerced even into writing. Do people just write because they can't not write? And if that's going on, don't they need to have someone out there that has, has, has expressed that as well? In other words, someone who has said, no, I didn't. I didn't have a lot of experience, and I certainly didn't have any training, and yet it still happened. Something still got published. It isn't out of the realm of possibility that you'll get published, too. Remember, I... Th- I, I go ahead, Mark. No, I, I, I was just thinking of this one thing about this notion of comparison. Like you say, you didn't have a lot of training in this and that, but you still forged ahead, as opposed to saying well, I'll never be Walt Whitman or I'll never be, uh, you know, Victor Hugo or whomever, you know, David mm-hmm. Mamet, when you choose the genre. But you can be the best that you can be. And, and mm-hmm. I think that that comparison aligned with criticism is what kills the creativity. Yes, I think so. I think you can defeat yourself very easily with this. Probably most of the arts you can. Uh, but with a writer, it's so lengthy. It's such a long process. And it's, it's also very fraught with editing. Um, that is my weakness. I hate editing. I accept editing. I welcome it. But I just don't like doing it. It's the secretarial act of creativity for me. It's like taking a step backward. And I fight it, I blow it. That's an extremely hard pathway for me to take and I'm sure I'm not alone. I guess it's it's that feeling and I go back to it over and over again. And, and you're probably the one person I've discussed it most with um, outside of maybe my husband, and that is 
it's so compelling. If there's a story in my head, and I know even, even just a quarter of it, I will go back to that story over and over and over again in my thoughts. Sometimes I'll start that story over again. Sometimes I'll let it sit, and then I will um, cast it aside for a few years more, and then I've got one right now that it just won't leave me alone. It's, uh, it has a, a dog centerpiece of the story. I've wanted to write that book for probably pretty much since Quickfall was over. I actually wrote another novel in the in the in-between because it was easier for me to develop it. But that original story with the dog, I cannot let go of it. And I, that's the one that I was working with the other day. It's just, wasn't it Maya Angelou who said there's nothing worse than dying with a, a story that you want to tell still inside of you? No, so many people do that yeah. as well. I mean, I think that with part of the process that I just loathe is I get bored going back over it. Yeah. And and so I yeah. need that new little thing that that will inspire me. Yeah. It's like, I've read this and even like when I'm editing interviews or, or film, it's just, I've been with the material for so long and just trying to get it so it's just right and it's it can be brutal. Well, Sharita, yeah. thank you so much for um, for spending time with us today to talk about uh, about writing and um, want to remind everyone that you can get Quick Fall of Light on Amazon.com. I would say, considering what we've been talking about, especially especially now, in this time, if anybody wants to to pursue the direction of writing, absolutely go for it. It's it it gives far more back to you than it will ever take. You just never know what to expect along the along the way. The journey is ninety nine percent of it. So I encourage people keep going, and if you want to write, if you're compelled to write, do it. Well, um, stay well and safe. All right. Thank you so much, Mark. It was a it was a great experience. It was good talking to you. It was nice talking with you as well. Bye bye. For more on Center Stage, visit stageandscreen.com. And hey, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Until next time, this is Mark Gordon, and I'll see you Center Stage. Center Stage, Center Stage, Center 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 Stage. Center Stage. Hello, this is Homer Simpson. Whenever I want to know what's going on in the entertainment world, I listen to Center Stage with Mark Gordon. <laughs>